I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Mark Uftegrove, ABC News presidential historian and LBJ Foundation CEO, about his new book, Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency which came out April 26, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas the day before on April 25, 2022. Enjoy. We're so glad you're here today to, uh, for this special program on a Monday morning, <laughs> a tribute to your commitment to history. Uh, to have my great friend Mark Uftergrove talking about his brand new biography of John F. Kennedy that comes out tomorrow. So you're getting an advance copy. I want to begin by thanking our sponsors who make this event possible. Uh, my law firm, the Shackelford Firm, the Crow Foundation, uh, Bank of Texas, the SMU Cox Alumni Association, uh, Overland Partners Architectural Firm, Swinerton Construction Firm, and Wells Fargo Private Wealth. So all of these sponsors are responsible for uh, hoping you enjoy this breakfast in this incredible room and a chance to get a signed copy of the book and, and hear the program. So thanks to our sponsors. And uh, now I want to introduce Mark. Uh, you, you saw the e-invite, I'm sure, but in case you've forgotten any of it, Mark and I first met, he was the head of the LBJ Library. Uh, before that, he, he was a political correspondent for Time Magazine, but he's now the head of the LBJ Foundation, which is committed to preserving the legacy of Lyndon Johnson. He's also ABC Television's uh, presidential historian. Whenever there's a presidential history issue, which there often is, Mark's the guy you're gonna see on television. He's also a wonderful historian, uh, he's written several books. I've read three of them, one on LBJ, Indomitable Will, one on Bush 41 and 43, The Last Republicans. But today we're going to be talking about incomparable grace. So, Mark, welcome to Old Parkland in Dallas. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, great. Uh, whenever you're an author, you've got to figure out where am I going to start this book. So, Mark, in your prologue, you started in June of 1961. Kennedy has been president for five months. He's been humiliated uh, two months before then in the disastrous Bay of Pigs invasion. And he's just been outmaneuvered by Khrushchev in Vienna. So he's beginning to feel like maybe he's in over his head and he may not be up to the job. So why start the book with such a downer scene? Well, first of all, Talmadge, thank you so much for, for doing this and for building these uh, wonderful uh, discussions about, about history. You're a good friend, and I'm, I'm grateful to you for having me. I'm grateful to you all for being here. There are a number of friends in the room, including my friend Ken Hirsch, who runs the, the Bush Foundation. We work together on a program called the Presidential Leadership Scholars. I'm also grateful to all of you for having very uncomplicated names. <laughs> I can't tell you how many books I have signed where I didn't spell Catherine with a Y, or I, I didn't spell Chris with a K. And so thank you so much for being Bob and David and easy names. It's a pleasure to be here. Talmadge, the reason I started, so, so let me just set the scene. As, as Talmadge suggests, uh, John F. Kennedy is in Vienna uh, on the last day of his two-day summit with Nikita Khrushchev, his counterpart in the Soviet Union. This is at a time when summits were a huge deal. The eyes of the world were focused on the leaders of the superpowers at a time when we were enmeshed in a Cold War. And John F. Kennedy has come into the presidency with huge fanfare. It's hard to remember now, but John F. Kennedy won the presidency by just two-tenths of a percentage point. But he goes on to win the favor of the American people very rapidly, among other things, by giving a great inauguration speech where we all remember him saying, Ask not you what your country can do for you. And after that, uh, a third of the American public, five days later, watches him do a very banal press conference. We are that fascinated in John F. Kennedy. He soon stubs his toe with the failed Bay of Pigs invasion 
in Cuba, gets a black eye on the world stage, and then meets with Khrushchev. And Kennedy is debonair and witty and charming and handsome, and everybody expects a lot from this inexperienced but very promising president. And as you suggest, Talmadge, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, in Kennedy's words, savages him. He confesses that to Scotty Reston, who is the reporter on the presidency for the New York Times in an off-the-record conversation that they have at the American Embassy in Vienna. And he realizes that by failing to stand up to Khrushchev in this crucial summit meeting, he has emboldened him. Khrushchev leaves Vienna thinking that Kennedy is weak. He says he calls him too intelligent and too weak. By too intelligent, he means he's, he thinks he's this effete Ivy Leaguer who's simply not strong. And that emboldens Khrushchev to go on and send missiles to Cuba, which he does the following year. So Kennedy is at the ebb of his presidency at this moment, and he realizes he has to do better and he has to show himself as a strong leader if he's going to succeed in the presidency. Mm -hmm. Now, I think most people are familiar with uh, some part of the saga of the Kennedy family, but famously, Father Joseph decided he wanted his oldest son, Joe, I guess Junior, to be president of the United States, and nothing was going to stand in the way of that. And then, of course, in those days, you had to serve in the military, had to be a hero, and unfortunately, Joe was killed in World War II. So John is the number two son, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, he never even thought about entering politics or president or anything else. Is it fair to say that John F. Kennedy had no choice <laughs> after Joe died? He had to commit himself to aspiring for the presidency? I think it was probably more than an expectation on Joe Kennedy's part that, that one of his family members would become president. Uh, Joe Kennedy came from a pretty good stock uh, in Boston. His, his father was a, a lawmaker, uh, relatively successful. Joe Kennedy had greater aspirations for himself, and he knew if he wanted to amass great power, particularly as a Catholic at that time. Catholics were marginalized citizens. They were second-class citizens, not to the same degree that African Americans were in this country, but they were not treated on the, in, in the same manner that, that uh, non-Catholic people, Presbyterian whites were. And so he realized if he wanted to get great power, which he very much wanted, he had to get great wealth first. So he became, at 25, the youngest bank owner in the United States at that time and would go on to become one of the fifth largest, uh, wealthiest people in the United States. But he wanted power. So he asked Franklin Roosevelt to become the, uh, the ambassador to Great Britain, the American ambassador to the UK, uh, the court of St. James. But he took an isolationist stand in World War II and he fell out of favor. Uh, and really didn't have an opportunity to earn the presidency in his own right. His son, Joe, who he, who he had great uh, hopes for, had died in World War II. And you're right, Talmadge, all of the aspirations that John F. Kennedy had for his children to be president were heaped on John F. Kennedy's very fragile shoulders because he was sickly, as you know. But I think that, so a lot gets made of Joe Kennedy's aspirations for his children. But I think it suited John F. Kennedy, too. John F. Kennedy wanted to be president. He was fascinated with power. He wanted to make his mark on the world. I mentioned he was sickly, and he had a very tenuous hold on life. He had seen his brother die in World War II. He would see, see his sister die soon thereafter. His sister, who was mentally challenged, had a lobotomy, uh, and it really ruined her life. He knew how fragile life was, and he wanted to make the most of his. So no sooner does he become a congressman in 1946 than he becomes a senator in 1950 and then has his eyes on the presidency, which he ultimately achieves in 1960. Mm -hmm. Now, in 1960, uh, people, my age, really my first presidential election, Kennedy ran against Richard Nixon and barely won, as you said, just, just a handful of votes. Uh, now, there was evidence in that election of voting irregularities in both Illinois and Texas that allowed Kennedy to win, put him over the top. So from your research, was it a rigged election in which Nixon, in fact, won, but for these voting irregularities? I don't know if, if Nixon would have won, but there were certainly voting irregularities in Cook County, in particular, the, the, where Chicago is based in, in Illinois and here in Texas. Now, bear in mind, in Texas, 
as you all may know, that was pretty regular stuff. That was pretty normal stuff at a certain time. Uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson would not have been senator in 1948, not elected to the Senate, but, but for voting irregularities. He wouldn't have been beat for the Senate in 1941, but for voting irregularities. So it was pretty common practice here to stuff the ballot box. But I don't know. I, there's a great story about Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon uh, is defeated for the presidency by this narrow victory, the narrowest victory in the 20th century. And uh, he's leaving the Capitol. His, bear in mind, he's the, he was the incumbent vice president before the inauguration of of uh, John F. Kennedy, and he's, he's walking out, and he drives himself home. And he bumps into Ted Sorensen, who has helped Kennedy write that indelible inauguration speech. And Nixon says to Sorensen, uh, you know, I wish I had said some of those things. And Sorensen says, you mean the part where he said, ask not? And he said, no, the part where he says, I do solemnly swear. <laughs> 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 well, Kennedy obviously followed Dwight Eisenhower into the presidency, and for the most part, they did not have good chemistry. So if you had asked Dwight Eisenhower on November 21, 1963, the day before Kennedy was killed, how do you rate John Kennedy as a president? How do you think Eisenhower would have answered that question? It's a, it's a fair question. He did not have, Eisenhower believed he had failed by not getting his vice president, Richard Nixon, elected. Um, they have a, a couple of meetings uh, that I cover in the, in the book, transition meetings, they're a little tense. Uh, Eisenhower calls Kennedy little boy blue, and Kennedy calls Eisenhower, pardon the vernacular, the old asshole. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's a little animosity between them. Eisenhower is the oldest outgoing president in the history of the United States of that time. John F. Kennedy is the youngest president-elect at the age of 43. So there's a marked generational difference between the two. But I, I think if you had asked, it's interesting, before, I didn't know this, Talmud, until I researched the book. On the day that the Cuban Missile Crisis erupts, we understand that the Soviets are shipping offensive weapons into Cuba the lead story in the New York Times is about Dwight Eisenhower criticizing the foreign policy of John F. Kennedy. Mm. So he does not have a great deal of faith in Kennedy uh, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happens. And that becomes the crucial moment in Kennedy's presidency, and he handles it with great equanimity, something he says that uh, Dwight Eisenhower has in the presidency. In fact, when he leaves the second transition meeting with Eisenhower, goes out of the White House gates. This is on January 19th, the day before Kennedy took the presidency. After Eisenhower had talked about all the trouble spots in the world, Kennedy says to an aide in the back seat of the limousines, in the limousine rather, how can he stare in the face of disaster with such equanimity, <laughs> with such calm, right? And then we see Kennedy resolve the, the Cuban Missile Crisis by tapping into the equanimity that he doesn't know he has. I think that Eisenhower would reluctantly say that Kennedy was a good president at the end of his tenure, I mean, when Kennedy right. was assassinated, but certainly not up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, your book uh, tells me something I didn't know, and that had to do with Kennedy's style of management. Obviously, there's a huge administration in every presidency, and I was shocked to learn that Kennedy never named a chief of staff. In this era, it's incomprehensible the president would not have a chief of staff. But you said that he stayed out of large meetings. He was constantly on the move such that his top aides would say, this is chaotic. We've got to change. So, so give us your evaluation of the way Kennedy managed the executive branch during his presidency. So it, it, there was a, a normal hierarchy during the presidencies of of Dwight Eisenhower and, and Harry Truman. And most presidencies are organized hierarchically. And you have a gatekeeper, to your point about the chief of staff, a gatekeeper determining the flow of who, who goes in and out of the Oval Office, what kind of matters wind up on your desk. Uh, Kennedy, I think somewhat impetuously, just decided to discard with that whole notion. And he would peek into the offices of folks who were three levels down and ask them questions. I think it kept everybody off balance. And it did not serve Kennedy well. And you're absolutely right. One of Kennedy's aides 
Talmadge writes him a memo and says, this isn't working. You've got, I hope you're in a good mood when you read this, but this is not working. So you need to, to kind of refigure how you want your White House to run or else it's going to be chaos. Kennedy agrees with him, but never quite does it. Kennedy wants to be in the action. He doesn't want to miss anything. And so that's why he wants, uh, does not want the, the normal hierarchical structure. Again, I don't think it served him. I think White Houses have to be orderly. George W. Bush is a really good example of somebody who had an impeccably run White House because it was hierarchical. Uh, but Kennedy dispensed with that notion. And again, I, I think he wanted to be the chief of staff, his own chief of staff, because he wanted to know absolutely everything. He had this, this uh, voracious appetite for information, as you know, whether it be oral briefings or written memos, whatever it was, uh, he read with great veracity, uh, voraciousness rather, and, and wanted to know every detail, but, but uh, it did not serve him well. And your book points out he read voraciously, and unlike me, he retained almost everything. I mean, he could read incredibly fast, and he'd remember it all, which to me, high IQ. Uh. Do you remember Evelyn Wood, the Evelyn Wood speed reading thing? He has all of his aides take the Evelyn Wood speed reading course so that they can keep up with him in his reading. Mm -hmm. Now, Kennedy, before he became president, had a truly underwhelming performance in Congress. During his years in the House of Representatives from 47 to 53 and in the Senate from 53 to 60. And as president, you talk about how he really didn't have much interest in working with Congress. We think about how important that is, uh, such that you use a rather strong term. You say he had legislative impotence. <laughs> so if he knew that and he acknowledged that, why didn't he put the master of the Senate, Lyndon Johnson, his vice president, to work? in establishing a better dynamic with Congress? You know, it's, uh, you're absolutely right. So Kennedy, again, what, he's no sooner in the House of Representatives than he wants to go to the Senate. And then when he's in the Senate, he wants to, he tries to figure a way to get on the ticket as vice president in 1956. He comes very close and then runs for the presidency himself. He knows he's not your typical politician. His maternal grandfather, Honey Fitz, was the very popular and colorful, colorful mayor of Boston. Uh, and he sees his grandfather as the archetypal politician, right? He's the backslapping, baby-kissing, name-knowing politician. John F. Kennedy is not that. He's cool. He's cerebral. He's not what you think a politician should be. But he is, he does understand that the television age gives him another opportunity. He thinks he fits the times, those are his words, because television will convey an image of Kennedy that will be very attractive to the American people, and indeed it was, not only the American people, but, but the world. But he doesn't have that legislative skill of, of Lyndon Johnson. There's great debate about why Lyndon Johnson was put on the ticket and the Kennedy's relationship with Lyndon Johnson. We can, I'll happily go into those things. But the bottom line is that Johnson was on the ticket for two reasons. Number one, most importantly, because they needed Southern balance or they simply wouldn't win. You had this Northern liberal that was not necessarily trusted by Democrats in the South, so you needed balance. And Lyndon Johnson, the behemoth, all-powerful Senate majority leader would give you Southern balance. But the other reason was that he was best in the position to fulfill the responsibilities of president. And we see that when Johnson becomes president. He understood power intuitively. As to why he wasn't put, it, put to work, I think it was at a time when the vice presidency used the word impotent, was far more impotent than it is today. Walter Mondale changed the role of vice president. It, it has more teeth now than it did during Lyndon Johnson's time. The other thing is that, that John F. Kennedy didn't have great rampant domestic policy ambitions. Mm -hmm. He thought being a great president was being a great foreign policy president. That's where he wanted to put his emphasis. That's where he wanted to put his attention. And bear in mind, this is at a time when the Cold War is at its height. So foreign relations were infinitely more important in many respects than domestic matters were. So uh, partly because of Bobby Kennedy, who had a toxic relationship with, with Lyndon Johnson, he is more or less sidelined during the Kennedy administration. Mm -hmm. Talking about television, one of the great features of the Kennedy presidency, you've probably all seen his inaugural address, which is magnificent, 
but I encourage you to watch a YouTube of his televised press conferences. He was the absolute master and could show off his full star power with wit, with straight talk. Those of you who saw the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, Peggy Noonan's column about his straight talk to the people during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But Mark, other than his Hollywood handsome good looks, what made Kennedy head and shoulders above everybody else in the way he handled a presidential press conference? He was incredibly knowledgeable about the issues. It, but actually, you can't diminish the fact that he was so beguiling and charming. He was witty. He never take, took himself all that seriously. He's all like George W. Bush, in fact. George W. Bush doesn't take, he takes, took the, 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 the position of the presidency incredibly seriously, but he didn't take himself all that seriously. He had a sense of humor. Kennedy had that, that people responded to it. Um, again, he understood the issues. He understood the people in the press. He respected journalists. He himself was a journalist at the close of World War II. He worked for Hearst newspapers covering some of the developments coming out of, of Europe during the close of the, war, the Second World War. So he really had a fascination with journalism and, and, and reached out to the journalists he knew. Uh, he cultivated these relationships knowing their importance. So that was, that was part of it. Again, it, it is amazing, but John F. Kennedy's press conferences were must-see TV. Imagine that, tuning in <laughs> as a must-see event, the, the press conference of, of a... Uh, of a president, we, we, we can't imagine that today. But in Kennedy's day, again, I mentioned a third of Ameri the American people tuned in on January 25th, 1961, several days after Kennedy took the presidency to watch the president hold forth on a bunch of really prosaic issues. That shows you the allure of John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's talk about the Bay of Pigs because uh, it was by far the biggest disaster of his presidency and it happened in April after he'd only been president three months. Uh, you say that, quote, the plan's central leap of faith was that it assumed many unhappy Cubans would join the uprising against Castro once it started. And when I read that, it made me think of John Brown, who did, led his attack on Harper's Ferry, and he thought all the American slaves were going to run away from their masters and join the revolt, and it was going to be the same type of revolt that arose instantaneously by the people who were being victimized. So Kennedy was a student of history. How could he make such a ridiculous assumption that Cubans were going to drop their everything and, and, and instantly uh, join the revolution? You know, we, we had a, so, so bear in mind, Fidel Castro is taking Cuba um, and driven out the Batista regime in 1959. And it's a, it's a huge black eye for the, uh, the, the United States. Uh, now, bear in mind, they weren't communist initially. That would happen after the Bay of Pigs. They did not ally, uh, Castro did not ally with the Soviet Union until after the Bay of Pigs. But it's, it's, a, it's a major embarrassment for the United States. And we had these hapless pl plans to drive uh, Castro out of office. Uh, there's something called Operation Mongoose, which just show the stupidity of some of the plans to drive him out of office, including... Uh, uh, dropping toilet paper with Fidel Castro's picture on it on the Cuban people. I mean, this is, this is true. Um, but the, but the, the Bay of Pigs assumed that Cuban nationals who had been driven out would go into, would invade Cuba, not under the auspices of the United States, but supported and trained by the United States because we didn't want to look like we had a hand in this, which is utterly ridiculous. Of course we did. There were... They were, they were, uh, there were U.S. planes there. Naturally, we were going to be identified with, with this operation. But it fails abysmally. We, use, we lose, rather, about 115 Cuban nationals. They're, they're, they're killed in this incursion. Another 1,200 are taken captive. And I think the reason Kennedy debates this, he has a series of meetings with his folks. The military brass are very jingoistic. They are very gung-ho to do this operation. And I think Kennedy is compelled to do it, to go forward with this. And again, it, it fails abysmally, but he learns his lesson. First of all, he goes, talk about press conferences, Talmadge, he goes before the American people and says, every good idea has many fathers, every bad idea is an orphan. But at the end of the day, I'm the commander in chief 
and the fault of this is mine. The buck stops with me. That's more or less what he says. And the American people forgive him to the tune of 83% approving his job performance. The highest he would see in his presence is 83% of the American people after this failed incursion of Cuba approve of, of, of him as president. Only 5% disapprove. And that speaks to two things. Number one, how beguiling Kennedy was, how, much, how successful he was in getting the American people to rally around his presidency. But it also says something about the American people, knowing that we're at the height of the Cold War, knowing that this would embolden Nikita Khrushchev and the Soviet Union, saying, you know what, we stand by our president. Think about that today, right? We stand by our president. Succeed or fail, we're with him in this moment. So I, but, but, but he learns from that, Talmadge, not to instantly take the advice of his very uh, gung-ho military. Which is incredibly important, because if he hadn't learned that lesson, when the Cuban Missile Crisis arose, the military was wanting to be a whole lot more aggressive, a whole lot more likely to trigger World War III. And, and Kennedy stood down, said, no, we're not going to do that. And so, in fact, the Bay of Pigs really was, was incredibly instrumental in the successful result of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Exactly right, for the reasons you suggest. I mean, they, they, so when the Cubans, or sorry, when the Soviet Union starts shipping missiles to Cuba, we learn this, uh, and then a harrowing 13 days ensue where we're at the brink of nuclear war. It's the closest, I think it's the most dangerous moment in humankind because we came this close to a nuclear exchange with the Soviets. And to your point, Talmadge, uh, the military brass says, let's bomb the installations. The, the, these are the, uh, the, the missiles that have gone in. They're, they're building installations in order to launch the missiles, if, if needed, on the United States. And before they're activated, the military wants to bomb them. They want to have an airstrike that takes them out. And Kennedy says, not so fast. That's going to trigger a nuclear war. We, we need to get rid of those missiles. That's, that's, there's, there's no question about that. Um, that's something we will not stand for, but we can't trigger a nuclear war. So he looks at all of his options, and what they do instead is a naval blockade. So the, the, uh, the Navy forms a blockade around Cuba, preventing uh, uh, Soviet ships from entering into Cuba. So this is, this is still a provocative action, but not to the same degree that uh, an airstrike would have mm -hmm. been. Now, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, ultimately, uh, as everybody's fearful of this nuclear exchange, Khrushchev basically blinks. And uh, Kennedy comes to realize that he, Khrushchev isn't a, a wild, crazy man who's perfectly fine with initiating a nuclear war. Khrushchev has a sense that, no, that would be a really stupid thing to do. Uh, God only knows what would have happened. And it dawned on me... Now, with the benefit of 50 years of history, how do you view Khrushchev as a world leader? Because if he had been something else, uh, maybe a Putin or maybe a Stalin, he might well have triggered World War III, but he had the good sense not to. So where do you come out on Khrushchev? You know, there, there, are, there are a lot of myths. So one of the things I tried to do with the book, this is, bear in mind, this is just Kennedy and the presidency, although you have to do a backstory to understand John F. Kennedy a little bit. So there's a backstory in there. But there, there, you have to get through the Camelot myth. And one of the myths about Camelot is that, you know, Nikita Khrushchev roundly stands down. There's this reckless gambit by, by shipping missiles to Cuba, 90 miles from American shores in our backyard, first nuclear missiles from Cuba, from, from uh, uh, the Soviet Union in the Western, Western Hemisphere. Uh, and, and, Khrushchev foolishly does this and then stands down. And that's, there's an element of truth to that. But really, at the end of the day, it's a quid pro quo. There are back-channel negotiations between uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev. What Khrushchev is concerned about, just as we're concerned about missiles in Cuba, in our backyard, Khrushchev is concerned that we have a nine-to-one advantage on nuclear weaponry versus the Soviet Union. And we have missiles in Turkey, which is in the backyard of the Soviet Union, in the Eastern Hemisphere. So he wants them out of there. Through these negotiations that happen in the back channel, we tell Khrushchev we will remove those missiles, which we do 
six months after the Cuban Missile Crisis has abated. So it's not a zero-sum victory on the part of the United States. It's a quid pro quo between the Soviet Union and the United States. Khrushchev, however, is looked upon very unfavorably for ostensibly backing down to the United States in this. But it, it is not as much a reckless gambit on his part as it is a, a way to figure out how to great, get greater parity at the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the central issues of the Kennedy presidency was civil rights. Not only was the height of the Cold War, it was really the height of the civil rights movement. And it took Kennedy more than two years until the spring of 1963 before he finally smelled the coffee and realized this is a moral issue. Why did it take him so long? You know, I've mentioned that Kennedy wanted to be a foreign policy president. Uh, and he, he wanted to show the world that we were morally superior. We were battling at that point in the world for hearts and minds across the world to show that we were the better system. And we were the better, better system partly because we were more humane. We were certainly more egalitarian. We believed in liberty, right? We believed that we should all have the same rights. That's a fundamental principle in American life. And yet we weren't treating our citizens that way, right? So John F. Kennedy did not want the world to see the treatment of blacks in this country. And that's exactly what the civil rights movement was meant to do, it was meant to generate awareness about essentially what was systemic apartheid in the United States of America, this ostensibly egalitarian country, right? So he's trying to keep this thing at bay. He's not trying to take a stand because it will tell the world that there's inherent disparity among our people. Mm -hmm. But Martin Luther King and the soldiers of the civil rights movement keep on pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, by the spring of 1963, Kennedy realizes he has to take a stand. This is at a time when the civil rights movement has taken his campaign to Birmingham, Alabama, the most segregated city in the United States. And we all can conjure up images of lunging German shepherds going off after marchers and weaponized fire hoses. We can all see those images in our head. And the people of the United States and the people of the world were seeing those images as well. Kennedy has finally had enough when George Wallace, the, the bantam segregationist governor of Alabama, stands in the schoolhouse door of University of Alabama, an administrative building, to prevent the integration of that institution. And, and the, the, the whole, all the airwaves are full of this story. And Kennedy doesn't want him to get, uh, to get the, the, the coverage. So he decides to make a speech that night. Bear in mind, that's a pretty quick turnaround for a speech. So Sorensen, Ted Sorensen, who I mentioned earlier, has to write the speech. And he says, you know what, Mr. President, I don't have enough time. Bobby Kennedy, who was awakened to the issue of, of civil rights, it took him a while too, Talmadge, the Kennedys are very much in tandem on this, says, you know what, go in front of the American people and speak from your heart. So about two-thirds of that very eloquent speech is extemporaneous, it's John F. Kennedy just talking off the top of his head, talking from his heart about the issue of civil rights. And to your point, Talmadge, he elevates civil rights to a moral issue. That is a huge step forward for the civil rights movement, telling the American people that it's our moral responsibility to do something about this. That had not been done before. And he proposes the Civil Rights Act of 1963, which would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964, passed into law by Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. Now, anytime you talk about a book on Kennedy, there's always a fascination with the Kennedy marriage, uh, particularly in light of all the revelations about his serial philandering with women uh, of all ages and uh, uh, mafia connections and so forth. Uh, and yet, for the most part, it didn't seem to bother Jackie Kennedy, who surely knew about it. Although, as you say in the book, in 1958, when she when it was hitting her in the face constantly, she said she's ready to divorce. And Joseph Kennedy said, will you stay in the marriage if I give you a million bucks? And, and Mark says, Our, we don't have the check, but the, we, the, the belief is that, in fact, he paid her the million bucks, and, and she accepted it. Uh, but, but give us uh, your assessment of, of how that marriage worked 
uh, with, with him almost in constant motion with women coming in and out of the White House. You, you, you can't escape this. This is a blemish on, on Kennedy's character. It really is. And, you know, it, it was, it, at that time, I talked to Gerald Ford about this years ago, and he, he talked about uh, womanizing as just being a typical part of Washington life. It was almost a right of privilege among the ruling class at the time. Most of the people he knew, he said, were having affairs. I don't, Jerry Ford did not, I will add. Uh, he was one of the, the few who didn't. He was a, very anomalous. But most lawmakers in Washington, I, I, I would think, were, were having some sort of affair. Kennedy was, took it to a whole different level. Uh, his father was a rampant womanizer as well. And in the testosterone, very com- infused and, and very competitive Kennedy family, it was almost a way of keeping score. But there's one thing in particular. He, uh, Kennedy has a 19-year-old intern named Mimi Beardsley with whom he has an affair. He, she loses her virginity to Kennedy just a week into her tenure as, a, as, a, as an intern, and he almost treats her like a concubine. Uh, it, it's a horrible story, and, and I'm sorry, you just can't justify the objectification of a, of a woman like that. You, there's no way you can understand that. So this is a major problem for, for Kennedy. That there's no way of getting around. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy is aware of it. In fact, there's a French journalist, she's touring through the West Wing at one point, and she points out a sec- someone in the secretarial pool, and she said, and that's the woman my husband is rumored to be having an affair with. So she knows this is going on. At the same time, the marriage works. I mean, she sort of accepts this as a price to pay uh, for marrying somebody who is, has this potential for greatness, and she really sees that in Kennedy. They become closer throughout the course of their time in the White House. In fact, she brings the children back to the White House during the Cuban Missile Crisis. She wants to be by her husband's side, and if there's a nuclear exchange, she wants the family to be together. That says something about her. Um, And, you know, during the crisis, night becomes day and day becomes night. She's up with them all hours. Uh, and then the following year, they have a, their third child who dies shortly after childbirth, Patrick. And the world sees this, and I think that brings them together. Uh, Patrick dies just 48 hours after his premature birth. And I think that that binds the Kennedys further to the American people and binds them further to each other. We've had two fabulously glamorous first ladies, Jacqueline Kennedy and Melania Trump. <laughs> compare them to as first ladies? That's a no-win question. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that, that Jacqueline Kennedy was the very picture of grace and charm. I think she saw, uh, when, when she came into the White House, she saw that we could do better. And she was a Francophile. She loved France. She had spent some time there as a student, uh, and she loved the taste and the, the style of the French people. And she wanted the White House to rival the palaces in Europe. And she brought culture and design uh, and refinement to the White House in a manner that we hadn't had before. Two-thirds of the American people tune into a television special where she gives a tour of the White House. Two-thirds of the American people. Two-thirds of the American people. That's more than the Super Bowl. Yeah, a lot more than the Super Bowl. It's astounding. Um, Melania Trump simply didn't have that allure. And, and I will say this, um, yeah, I, Melania Trump may have had her, her uh, own strengths. Um, she was a little less high profile than, than Jacqueline Kennedy. But I think one of the things that Jacqueline Kennedy would never have done, she had a, uh, an auction, auctioned off Kennedy memorabilia that she allowed posthumously after her death. Some of you may have remembered this. Jack Kennedy's golf clubs were going for, you know, two hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, But I don't think she would have auctioned off things during the course of her life because it would have cheapened Mm -hmm. the the presidency, essentially. Uh, Melania Trump did that recently, and it really surprised me. Mm -hmm. One of the things you don't do is you don't uh, capitalize in, a, in overt ways on the presidency. You don't cash in on the presidency. So that, that's, I think, one difference between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had to pick the hottest, most volatile place on the earth, 
during the Kennedy presidency. I think it'd have to be Berlin. And in August 1961, that's when the wall was built. Kennedy had been in office seven months. And then in 1963, he gave an electrifying speech. And if you haven't ever seen that speech, watch it on YouTube. Every time I see it, it brings me to tears. It's the most powerful speech I think I've ever seen. So why was Berlin such a focal point? And what was his strategy for securing West Berlin? So bear in mind, this is again at the height of the Cold War. And one of the most uh, contentious areas was, was Berlin. You had at the time, of course, you had West Germany and East Germany. West Germany was part of the Eastern Bloc, which was under the thumb of the Soviet Union. Uh, West Germany was part of the Western world. It was, it was free. And so because you did not have a wall along the border, you had the hemorrhaging of East Berliners going into uh, West Berlin, East Germans going into West Germany, fleeing. And it was a huge embarrassment for the Soviet Union. So in August of 1961, uh, in the middle of the night, the Soviet Union erects a wall. Actually, it was a fence at the time, but it would be upgraded to a wall later to prevent uh, the, the uh, uh, East German people from fleeing East Germany. And the world sees this, and we can see how tyrannical the Soviet Union is as a result of this. We do not contest this because, and I think very wisely, Kennedy prudently avoided military conflict wherever he could. And this is a great example of that, and and wisely. He gives them their wall. Why not? But it also becomes a powerful symbol of Soviet tyranny. In the same way, for instance, that the invasion of Ukraine today is a symbol of, of Russian tyranny. And so Kennedy goes to visit the wall, as you suggest, Talmadge, and he has this speech and he's driving with a member of the military and he has him read the speech. He says, what do you think? Guy says, it's not very good. Kennedy says, yeah, it sucks, more or less. And he, he ends up writing his own speech in the office of the Berlin mayor, Willie Brandt. Uh, and that's the speech he delivers. And at one point he says, how do you say I am a Berliner in German? And it's ich bin ein Berliner. And the, the, the statement he makes is, We are all Berliners. All men who want to be free are Berliners. So I'm proud to say today that I am a Berliner in the same way that we might say today, I'm proud to say that I'm Ukrainian. We stand with the the Ukrainian people in this moment of darkness as they're being invaded and taken over by the Russian people. Mm -hmm. Now, a question that's frequently asked about the Kennedy presidency has to do with Vietnam. We know that he ratcheted things up somewhat during his presidency, Thanks for but listening. it was not a major escalation like Lyndon Johnson did after he became president. So the question is, had Kennedy lived, do we think that he would have followed the same escalation plan as LBJ? Now, in the book, you say, hey, that's a fool's errand. There's no way to know one way or the other. But at the same time, Mark, in the book, you acknowledge that John F. Kennedy absolutely believed in the domino theory, and and the people who were advising him on foreign policy were exactly the same people who advised Lyndon Johnson on foreign policy. So can't we say it was more likely than not that he would have escalated in Vietnam the way LBJ did? Here's what I love about Talmadge Boston. He actually reads the book. (laughs) 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 That's exactly right. There's this as part of the Camelot myth that John F. Kennedy would have had the wisdom and prudence to pull out of Vietnam. Let me tell you, in 1963, there was no reason to pull out of Vietnam. He had, he had escalated the war and essentially by, by, by putting in more military advisors. He says to everybody that we have to hold the line on Vietnam. And to, to Talmadge's point, we have to hold the line on uh, Soviet aggression. Because if we don't, the dominoes will start to fall and Vietnam will fall and then Thailand and other countries that may be of greater geopolitical significance. So he says Vietnam is the place. He lets Laos fall potentially to communism. He tries to negotiate a way out of that. He avoids military engagement in in Berlin, as we talked about. He avoids it in Cuba. But he realizes he has to hold the line in, in Vietnam. The, the reason that that myth came alive, because is we all know that Vietnam now was a quagmire. 
It wasn't that clear at that time. So when Bobby Kennedy comes to the realization that we need to get out of Vietnam well before uh, Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson never came to that realization. Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson kept on, kept on doubling down on Vietnam while looking for an honorable way out, a peaceful resolution. Bobby Kennedy becomes this hawk when he has his own, or excuse me, this dove, when he has his own political aspirations to reach the presidency. And that's when this myth starts that John F. Kennedy would have pulled out. What we do know is that he was really prudent when it came to military engagement. He did not want to engage, as the point you made earlier about the Cuban Missile Crisis. So would he have come to that realization if he had gotten reelected in 1967, 1968, when support for the war begins to wane? Maybe. But there's no doubt that he would have continued to escalate, in my mind, until then. For my last question, before we open it up to the audience, uh, every time there's a change in president, C-SPAN does a poll, and the only people who vote are respected historians. There's like 150 of them. And they rank the presidents from the absolute best to the absolute worst. And in, in the, the recent polls, even though he served less than three years as president, John F. Kennedy is ranked eighth. Lincoln, Washington, FDR, Theodore Roosevelt, Eisenhower five, Truman six, Jefferson seven, uh, Kennedy eighth, Reagan ninth, Obama 10, LBJ 11. But Kennedy's ahead of Andrew Jackson, ahead of Woodrow Wilson, Head of James Madison, uh, Mark, justify that ranking for a president who served less than three years. You know, I, I, I participated in that, in that survey. You're one of the voters. Yeah, uh, and I, I will say that uh, Lyndon Johnson got, you know, I, I, as Talbot Bench, I was, I'm the, I was the director of the LBJ Library and the, I'm now the president CEO of the LBJ Foundation. Uh, and I've always believed that Lyndon Johnson was not uh, does not get the credit he deserves. That's a whole different talk. But and Barack Obama bumped him out of 10th place. It killed me. <laughs> but, uh, but I think Kennedy does deserve it. it. There is, first of all, he doesn't accomplish much. Uh, it's, uh, you, you can't brag about Kennedy's legislative accomplishments. But he shows that words matter. There, Clement Attlee, who was the... Uh, succeeder to Winston Churchill and the prime ministership of, of Great Britain, said of Churchill's gift for oratory during the Second World War, words at great moments can be deeds. And Kennedy shows that. His words are deeds. There are these speeches that he gives throughout the course of his presidency. We know his inauguration speech. You talked about that speech at the Berlin Wall. You talked about that speech about civil rights where he elevates it to a moral cause. You could talk about the speech he made here in the great state of Texas, rallying us to go to the moon, where he says, we choose to go to the moon. Not because Not, it's easy, but because it's hard. And he talks about that being a uniquely American proposition, why it, it fits the American spirit, and he gets all rallied around this. He gives this great speech uh, at American University, where he talks about the need for peace, which results in the nuclear test ban treaty. This is after the Cuban Missile Crisis. These words matter. That that inauguration speech matters because it's an eternal expression of American ideals where you put service over self. You put your country over yourself, right? That's a, a fundamental part of who we are as Americans. We think about country first at our very best. Sometimes we don't at our peril. But at our best, we put our country beyond ourselves. 63% of the American people after that inauguration speech, thought of something they, they could do more for their country. It spurs on the civil rights movement. They get encouraged by this, much to Kennedy's chagrin, mind, at that moment. But I think that it, 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 those, it, it are, it, it's his words that matter to us during that crucial time and make us a better nation. It creates this tide of liberalism, literally liberalism, belief in government, in 1964, 77% of the American people believed in their government. Today, today, that number is in the 20s. And that liberal tide helps Lyndon Johnson to put forth the laws of the great society, including civil rights. So there's this great tide of liberalism that spills into the Johnson presidency and fundamentally changes America. And you can give Kennedy credit for that, plus resolving the Cuban Missile Crisis without a nuclear Avoiding change. Avoiding World the War III. Yeah. Wasn't that fantastic? Well, thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there any wonder why ABC Television wants Mark to be their commentator? But let me tell you this about the book that each of you got. And if you haven't, Mark's going to be back over the table uh, and, and we'll sign other books if you had not gotten yours yet. But this is an incredible book. Number one, in, in 2022, we all know about the short attention span. This book is 300 pages, but it's airtight. It's fluidly written. You will get your arms around the man and the times and, and the world at that time. So it's a true masterpiece that's endorsed on the back by two of our leading presidential historians. So Mark has really done something great. And it seemed to me that in the, in the last 20 years, there's been way too much focus on Kennedy and this philandering and the mafia and all this kind of, and not enough focusing on the greatness of Kennedy. And that's what this book does. Yes, Mark had not pull any punches. He talks about Dr. Feelgood and the drugs and the health issues and the philandering and all that kind of stuff. But what it rises to the top in the end is really what made Kennedy so great that the historians can step back and, and see him as the eighth greatest of all time. So please take the time. Don't bury this book on your bookshelf or your nightstand. This is a terrific read. And so, Mark, you've done something really great by bringing back into our uh, mindset uh, those, those incredible times and, and how lucky we were to have a Kennedy as our leader at that time. Well, that's incredibly generous. Thank you so much for that. Coming from a fellow historian, that means a great deal to me. And thank you all so much for coming. This has been a joy for me. Thank you. After reading Mark Upton Grove's terrific new biography of John F. Kennedy, it made me understand why the most recent C-SPAN presidential ranking poll in which all the voters are recognized historians ranked John F. Kennedy number eight, our eighth greatest president, even though he served in office less than three years. That's amazing, but given what he did in that short period of time, the hopes he raised, the new direction that he gave to the country, I have a much better understanding and acceptance of it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.